0: Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. Coming up in this episode, the ludicrous behavior of police officers in Phoenix, Arizona, my complaints about the so-called threat of critical race theory in evangelicalism, and Joe Biden puts his foot in his mouth yet again by praising segregationists and their so-called civility. And finally, why I think Juneteenth should be a national holiday. First up, the reviews. We are at 123 reviews now. And that's up from 109 during the previous episode. So thank you to everyone who's left a review so far. And in particular, the 14 of you who left a review since the last episode. And here's one of them. It's from Words King, words with a Z. And he writes an extensive and thoughtful weekly review. Jamar's work, in less than an hour, is worth many hours of thought and processing each week. I realized that I listen to the news to consume information and partly to be entertained. In footnotes, Jamar encourages thoughtful processing of big issues for their singular impact as well as the broader narrative each speaks to. I'm excited to listen to each episode and come with a hunger to learn a week's worth of information. As a trained historian and theologian, he helps educate and teach a world that, like me, consumes information to process and dialogue the news as well. I cannot wait for the next episode of Footnotes. Thank you so much, Words King. I strive to incorporate my training as both a historian and a theologian in this podcast, so I really do appreciate you noticing and commenting on that. I hope the commentary gets even better and even sharper each week. So one of the things I try to do on this podcast is share a little bit about my story and things that are going on in my life. I do this sort of as an exercise because I'm naturally a more private person. Really, I'm zero to 60. Either you know nothing about me or I way overshare, but I'm trying to strike a happy medium here. And so for this next part, I apologize in advance for the shameless self-promotion that's about to happen. But The way I see it, if you don't celebrate your own personal victories and achieving goals, well, then you can't count on anyone else to do it for you. So, no school is perfect, but I am a proud alumnus of the University of Notre Dame. Go Irish! If you had the desire and the privilege to go to college and you're pleased that you graduated from there, then it's always a special honor to get recognized by your by your alma mater. Now, I've been trying for years to make sure that my professional life and accomplishments reflected well on the school that gave me so much, and finally, I got on the school's radar. They did a profile of me for their We Are N.D. We Are Notre Dame, series. It's an online piece entitled Building a More Just Church, and the interview discusses my views about pursuing racial justice in the church and beyond. More than that, though, it goes into my backstory. The article has a lot about how I grew up, my experiences with racism, my motivations. And I commend it to you because it gives a lot more about my biography than I typically reveal. In fact, I'm a bit nervous putting it all out there. But it's very well written, and I think you might find it interesting. Maybe you see a little bit of your story and my own, and at the very least, you'll get to hear more about my journey. And one final note, one of my goals, I'm just putting it out there. One of my goals for 2020 is to get back to Notre Dame for a speaking engagement. So I'll keep you posted on that. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't, but I hope so. In the meantime, if anyone has the hookup for a home football game, let me know. You can email me at footnotespod1 at gmail.com. That's right, We have an official email address. It's footnotespod, P-O-D, and the number one, footnotespod1 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. So send me your questions, your comments, your suggestions for topics to cover. It always helps if you send links to articles and other resources, but I look forward to hearing from you. Now, on to the news. Phoenix police officers remind us that we need to keep saying Black Lives Matter. You remember a few years ago when the hashtag Black Lives Matter became part of the national vocabulary. You may also remember that this phrase and this movement occurred largely in response to issues of police brutality against black people. Well, even though you may not see the hashtag as much these days, the problem of police brutality is still ongoing. So on May 29th, several white police officers in Phoenix, Arizona, confronted two black people, Drayvon Ames and his fiance, Aisha Harper, with guns drawn. And the officers yelled things like, you're going to get effing shot. I'm going to put an effing cap in your effing head. Why the confrontation? Why the threats? Ames and Harper were with their two daughters. One was one-year-old and the other was four-years-old. The four-year-old allegedly walked out of a family dollar store with a doll and didn't pay for it. In other words, this was a case of shoplifting perpetuated by a four-year-old. As with so many other cases, the only reason we know about this and what really happened is that a bystander recorded the incident on a cell phone video. Now, this is even more important because in the police report, officers clearly gave their most favorable favorable version of events that would make them appear calm and professional in a situation in which they were anything but. And so the report said things like, I gave loud verbal commands for the occupants of the vehicle to get their hands up. It didn't say they shouted and cursed at them. The report from the officers goes on to state that Miss Harper, quote, continued to refuse to put her hands in the air and continued to keep them down by the seat. I feared that she was hiding something or reaching for a weapon. Now, this officer left out the part where Miss ha- Harper says she can't put up her hands because she's holding a one-year-old. So if you look at the video, you can see the fear. You can hear the fear. In the two people they encounter. Uh, you can hear the aggression and the escalation in the voices of the police officer. And it was really bystanders who helped calm the situation down. And so we've seen videos like this ref- before and even worse where people end up dead. So what does this all mean? Well, a few things. Number one, these incidents all follow a pattern. So we've seen the video but next, be prepared for folks to dig up all kinds of dirt on Drayvon and Aisha. But remember, whatever they did before is irrelevant, it has nothing to do with this specific incident. It's unlikely that the police officers who confronted this couple and their children even had prior knowledge about them. So that probably didn't factor at all into the situation. On top of that, you don't need to be a flawless, sinless person to be treated as someone who has inherent dignity and worth, and not have a gun pointed in your face over a nonviolent crime while you're with children all under the ages of five. By the way, Miss Aisha is pregnant. Number two, what does this mean? We can't believe police reports. I'm sorry. It's just the way that this thing goes. It's not that every report is false or that even most reports are false, but there are enough falsehoods. Enough omissions, enough obfuscations in these reports to make them suspect. Now, I haven't even had the chance to talk on this podcast about the spectacular and gut-wrenching film, When They See Us, by Ava DuVernay about the Central Park Five, now the exonerated five. But that entire drama was engineered by police and prosecutors, even though what they convicted these boys on turned out to be false. And they knew this. This has been happening for decades. And unfortunately, when it comes to black lives, we have good reason and lots of receipts for not taking the police at their word. Now, I know there are good cops out there working hard every day and even risking their lives to protect and serve. But this is not just the case of a few bad apples. We have to carefully interrogate even what law enforcement officers are telling us happened. I should also mention that the police chief in Phoenix is a black woman named Jerry Williams. She issued a swift apology, and she's made moves to make this entire investigation transparent. But the couple involved and many others are calling for the disciplining and even firing of the officers. As of now, as I'm recording this, these officers have not been fired, but they are on, quote, non-enforcement duties. And lastly, the couple is also suing for $10 million. Now, if that sounds like a lot of money to you for this incident, watch the video. But trigger warning, it is quite disturbing. But watch the video and think about the trauma that this couple endured and that their children endured. Aisha says her daughter wakes up in the middle of the night screaming and with nightmares. The effects of incidents like these persist for years and years to come. So what's the price you put on racially traumatic incidents? that never should have happened. Black Lives Matter. The so-called threat of critical race theory and evangelicalism. Now look, folks, I hesitate to even comment on this next topic because I think it's bogus. I think it's made up and it's a distraction. But I keep seeing it crop up online and in other places, and it's bugging me. So let me say a few words about critical race theory and the supposedly dire threat that it poses to evangelicalism. So the whole thing is based on this idea that critical race theory, or CRT for short, has crept into evangelical circles and threatens to undermine the sufficiency of scripture for Christians. What is critical race theory? Well, According to the Southern Baptist Convention's recently adopted Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality, it says, critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society, and intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and inform one's experience. Now, Critical race theory, or CRT, has a long history in uh, legal studies. Kimberly Williams Crenshaw uh, really pioneered and and coined this term, and so you can find out a lot more about that. But what's significant here is a couple of things. Number one, the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's second largest Christian denomination overall, and the largest Protestant denomination, passed the resolution at their recent annual gathering. This same resolution goes on to state... Quote, critical race theory and intersectionality have been appropriated by individuals with worldviews that are contrary to the Christian faith, resulting in ideologies and methods that contradict Scripture. And then it resolves that the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Birmingham, Alabama, June 11th and 12th, 2019, affirm Scripture as the first, last, and sufficient authority with regard to how the Church seeks to redress social ills, and we reject any conduct, creeds, and religious opinions which contradict Scripture. And be it further resolved, that critical race theory and intersectionality should only be employed as analytical tools subordinate to Scripture, not as transcendent ideological frameworks. And one last part. That the quote the Southern Baptist churches and institutions repudiate the misuse of insights gained from critical race theory, intersectionality, and any unbiblical ideologies that can emerge from their use when absolutized as a world view. So there's a lot there, and there's even more in the resolution, which you can find online. But let's unpack this. My issue is not primarily with the statement itself, though we could talk about that, but it's more so what the statement represents. First, it represents, I think, a victory for the critics. As I said at the beginning of this segment, this is a made-up problem. From what I've seen, a group of mostly white, mostly male Christians decided that critical race theory was becoming a problem in their circles, and they created a sufficient enough stink in blog posts, on Twitter, on podcasts, and at conferences to make people sit up and listen. It's a victory for them because very few people were talking about critical race theory, and they certainly weren't panicking about it until this group of people made it an issue. Second, I've been reluctant to talk about this because to do so, Let's the critics set the agenda and the dialogue. Look, just because you don't like critical race theory or feel threatened by it doesn't make it an actual issue, much less a threat to evangelicalism. Third, this means this entire conversation is a distraction, right? Instead of focusing on the actual issues of racial inequality in the congregation and the nation, The continued problems of racism and white supremacy, the wildly different outcomes in terms of flourishing between black and white people. We're not talking about those issues and what to do about them. Instead, we're talking about a framework for understanding racism and how that supposedly threatens to derail the, you could say, white evangelical church in America today. Now, here's what I think the real issue is. White fragility. Yeah, I said it. I think what had happened was some Christians, including myself, started using words associated with the social sciences, words and phrases such as white fragility, white supremacy, intersectionality, power, and other words. So some people heard this and thought, the enemy is within the gate, to harms, to harms. Speaking for myself, I find these terms helpful. The fact of the matter is non-Christians have done a lot more thinking and made much more progress on issues of race than many parts of the American church. Now, we've got more to learn from them in some ways than they have to learn from us, simply because non-Christians have paid sustained scholarly attention to the problem of racism instead of always trying to find ways to deflect it or to minimize it. But the crux of the matter, as put forth by this SBC resolution number nine, is that people, presumably people like me and others, are using critical race theory instead of Scripture. That somehow CRT has become the defining ideology of certain Christians rather than the Bible. Now, that's just ludicrous. It's nonsense. This is a made-up enemy. I mean, it's not as if there aren't people who use CRT as their sort of whole worldview and ideology. I suppose that's possible. But not in these circles. Not in the SBC, mainstream SBC, or other affiliated parts of the the evangelical church. Uh, I don't know where that's coming from or, or who these folks are. If one uses this language, it doesn't mean that he or she denies the sufficiency of Scripture. Rather, it's a recognition that all truth is God's truth, and we can find anyone anywhere who has helpful frameworks that we can take parts of it and use while not adopting all of it. And we do this even with theology, right? No matter who your favorite theologian is or what your preferred system of theological thought is, you take some and leave the rest. And it's the same with secular frameworks as well. You want to know what I really think? I think when people started hearing some of this language, they interpreted it as white people can do no good. They thought, well, now Christians are sounding just like the far left and blaming white people, namely white men, for every problem, and there's nothing that will satisfy these people. I think that's what they were thinking. And all I can say is this, look, maybe the reason why people like me, who take racial justice very seriously, have been so insistent, have been so urgent, and have to so often look to sources beyond the church to learn about race, maybe the reason is because of discussions like this one on critical race theory, where people prefer to warn against those of us who are fighting racial injustice instead of acknowledging the problem and joining us in the fight. So I don't know where you stand on this issue. You can talk about it. You can think about it. But just know that the very fact that it's a topic means that the critics have framed the dialogue and the discussion. We need to be careful of that. Joe Biden commends the civility of a rabid segregationist. Joe Biden, Uncle Joe, former vice president of the United States and now a candidate for the Democratic nominee for president is known for his public gaffes. But this one might linger for a while. At a fundraiser at New York City on Tuesday, Biden talked about his ability to work with Republicans. And reflecting on his time in the Senate in the 1970s and 80s, he praised Mississippi Senator James O. Eastland as a man with whom he could work and get things done. Biden said, I was in a caucus with James O. Eastland. He never called me boy. He always called me son. All right, pause. Stop. Wait. Right there. He never called me boy. He always called me son. You know who white Southerners called boy? Black men. Didn't matter your age, you could be an actual boy, a a young child, or you could be a fully grown man, you could even be someone older than the person addressing you as boy. Boy was a derogatory term, it was demeaning, it was meant to look down on black people no matter what their age or stage and say, you'll always be lesser than me, a white person, particularly a white man who's the full adult. It also speaks to the issue of paternalism, that the relationship of many white people and the attitude of many white people toward black people was one of paternalism, where they were viewing themselves as parents or caretakers of black people who were childlike and ignorant and needed to be controlled. So this whole language is very fraught. And Biden comes up and said, well, he never calls me boy, he called me son which is much more of a term of endearment its family its you know care its all of that stuff uh still kind of condescending but you know at least it's not boy uh and biden doesn't even acknowledge that in his statements but be, be, beyond that why bring up james o eastland at all well let me tell you a little bit about james eastland again he's a senator from mississippi became a senator in 1942 he was a democrat but not A Democrat, as you would think of them today, he was a Southern Dixie crap. And he quickly drew his line in the sand as an anti integrationist, pro segregationist uh, senator. He was opposed to much of the civil rights legislation that passed in the 1960s, like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. He decried what he and others called the mongrelization of the white race that would happen due to intermarriage with black people. Eastland was also a staunch anti-communist, and not just for reasons of national security. According to one historian, quote, the fight against communism was a fight for white supremacy. Much of Eastland's hatred for communism grew from his concerns about its potential effect on black Americans. And so he spoke of black people as an inferior race, and he ran on a segregationist platform, which played very well with white Mississippians at the time. Eastland was also a plantation owner in Mississippi. He owned a 5,800-acre plantation in Sunflower County, where he employed sharecroppers, which was an unjust, economically exploitative system that took over after slavery. And one more fact about James O. Eastland. His father was named Woods Eastland, and Woods Eastland was responsible for the gruesome lynching of Luther and Mary Holbert in 1904. If you've read my book, The Color of Compromise, I talk about it in there. Luther had been accused of killing Woods' brother, who was also named James, and Woods Eastland got a posse together to hunt down the Holberts. And he was also accused of killing another black man who was with uh, Woods' brother. But Woods Eastland got a posse together to hunt down the Holberts. The lynching, which was deliberately planned for a Sunday afternoon where, get this, on the grounds of a black church for maximum crowds and maximum impact. The torture included cutting off the fingers and ears of the Holberts. It included boring a large corkscrew into the flesh of the Holberts, and it concluded by burning them alive. Later that same year, James O. Eastland, named after his deceased uncle, was born on the plantation now, the sins of the father are not the sins of the son, but, as another historian put it, the Eastland family exemplified what Woods, and later James himself, believed to be the ideal society, one in which older white males wielded unquestioned dominance over their inferiors, young people, workers, women, non-whites. And under Woods's watchful eye, James Eastland learned the importance of protecting white dominance. In a black majority world. So this is the man who Joe Biden praised as, Hey, I was able to work with him. We didn't agree on much, but we got stuff done. But listen, Biden's middle of the road, moderate approach has its appeal. If all you do is listen to the pundits and the Twitter disputes, then you're going to think that that nobody likes Biden, but he's the front runner. And honestly, in my experience, lots of everyday Americans, they want someone in the White House who's going to demonstrate some decorum and not demonize people like the current president. Now, I know, I know moderation rarely leads to substantive change, but we shouldn't underestimate how weary and how tired everyday Americans are. Now, they may support a more progressive social agenda, social policies that other candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have proposed. But in the end, if you're not a Trump supporter, you're likely looking simply for the person most likely to beat Trump and the person most likely to do the least harm. So if that's your lens, then Joe Biden looks pretty good. There's a reason why he's the front runner right now. I mean, a lot of that's name recognition, uh, but talk to regular folks. I mean, most of us don't have the time to look deeply into policy issues. We just know we don't like what's happening right now. And a familiar face who worked with someone that people generally like, Barack Obama, who uh, was well liked, he has a great chance at the nomination, I think. I mean, you know, I just say that because a lot of the pundits think there's no way he could or should be the nominee. But to do that, I think overlooks how much people want something familiar. And oftentimes what's familiar is not what is most sort of bold or different, but what they're used to seeing. Uh So all that being said, maybe, you know, Don't praise segregationists and white supremacists on the campaign trail, especially when your nomination depends on black voters supporting you. So, Joe Biden, I don't know where you'll end up, but I know you need better examples than your relationship with Senator James O. Eastman. Why Juneteenth should be a national holiday? If you're listening to this, Juneteenth 2019 has already passed, but it's always a good time to talk about this date in history. Juneteenth is a mashup of the words June and 19, and it stands for the day when Major General Gordon Granger informed enslaved people in Texas of their emancipation. By the way, I'll give you this as a bonus. It's for free because I like you. Historians and other people tend to use the phrase enslaved people rather than slaves, because to use the term slaves reduces people to their condition of servitude. That's sort of the sum total of who they are, is what they do as people forced into bondage and labor. To say enslaved people recognizes their humanity, but also speaks to their status As someone who is under bondage. So that's the language I try to use. I may not be 100% consistent, but I'm working to do that. And you may consider adopting that language of enslaved people rather than slaves in your own nomenclature. Uh, that being said, back to Juneteenth. The announcement came on June 19th, 1865, and that's two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation from Lincoln went into effect, which was January 1st, 1863. This is before the days of Twitter and email. So news traveled especially slowly, particularly when people didn't want it to travel. But black people in Texas celebrated nonetheless, and the celebration spread to other states. Today, Juneteenth stands as the oldest celebration of black emancipation in the country. Here's a little backstory on June 19th. First, the Emancipation Proclamation was limited. A lot of people didn't know this. I didn't know this until I was an adult. But the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free all enslaved people. It only applied to certain states in the Confederacy, those that were still not under union control, and— it was a presidential order, not an act of Congress. So ultimately, its success depended on the Union winning over the Confederates. Secondly, like I said, the proclamation didn't free all enslaved people. It took the 13th Amendment to officially abolish slavery in the United States. But even this legal declaration of freedom had the infamous exception clause. So the 13th Amendment, the first section reads this way, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So it emancipated all enslaved people except in the condition punished for a crime and and convicted. So that phrase, except as punishment for a crime, is what led to the convict lease system, and what some have called a face fate worse than slavery. For more on that, see another Ava DuVernay film, a documentary called 13th. Now today, most states recognize Juneteenth as a state holiday or a day of observance, but I think Juneteenth should be a national holiday for at least three reasons. Number one, it's a way to acknowledge the past and celebrate progress. So this is One of the most epochal events in American history is the abolishing of race-based chattel slavery, uh, an economic system upon which the prosperity of America was built. And to abolish it, it took the nation's bloodiest war, to date the bloodiest war, to abolish slavery. And so that's just an event of national significance. But to pause every year nationally, Would cause us to look back and remember, hey, this is part of our past. It would give us occasion annually to say, yeah, the Civil War was actually about slavery, not just states' rights. If it was about states' rights, it was about the state's right to own people and to realize that this is a massive shame in our nation's history. Uh, But it also, secondly, gives us an opportunity to celebrate progress. Because look, I'm the first person to acknowledge we are not where we need to be in terms of racial equality, but we're also not where we once were. We're not walking around in physical chains because race-based chattel slavery is legal. So that fact that it was abolished is something to celebrate. It's progress. It's America moving closer to some of the ideals it put on paper in the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution. And lastly, a reason Juneteenth should be a federal holiday is because it gives us a chance... To look at the state of affairs today and say, here's where we are, but here's where we still have left to go. So it will help us every year to reflect on the fact that, yes, this is a horrible part of our past. Yes, we're glad that we've made progress beyond it and slavery has been abolished. But listen, we've still got more work to do and the struggle continues. And I think a day to pause and remember that would do our nation good. So, Happy Juneteenth. That's it for this week. Remember to like my author page on Facebook so we can continue this discussion. That's facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby one, the number one. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, both at Jamar Tisby, J-E-M-A-R-T-I-S-B-Y. And now we have an email address. So be sure to send your questions, comments, and suggestions to footnotespod1 at gmail.com, footnotespod, P-O-D, and the number one at gmail.com. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out the WitnessBcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. This episode is brought to you in part